I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. By 2024, the concept is we'll have our first woman and the next man stepping on the surface of the moon in the South Pole. And then over that decade, we'll have quite a few additional launches where we'll, we'll develop some infrastructure. Unlike the Apollo program, for which we go stay a day or so and then come home, we want to be able to stay many days, many weeks, and perhaps several months. And the whole, whole series of things that we are planning to do is what we will do on Mars. That's how we as a species will survive. Jim Green likes to think big. And as the chief scientist at NASA, he's had plenty of opportunities, not only on how we might colonize Mars, but also how we might turn the Sahara Desert into a Garden of Eden. And he still has time to think about the spark that created life on our planet and maybe throughout the galaxy. But what makes Jim Green a great guest for Clear and Vivid is that he's so good at sharing these ideas with the rest of us. This is so great that you can come join me today. I'm really happy because you're such an extraordinary communicator and you, you do it consciously, don't you? I do. I, I enjoy it. And it didn't start out that way, it turns out. How, how did you start out? Well, In, incomprehensible. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> okay, uh, but uh, as a NASA scientist, you know, my job was to do fundamental research, take a look at spacecraft data, interpret it, find new things, and and that's a rush. That you you, you know, I have had in my career a number of aha moments where I'm sitting there looking at spacecraft data and I'm realizing that here's a physical phenomenon I have figured out and no one else on the Earth knows about it yet. That feeling is something I've heard from s several scientists and it's an extraordinary feeling, it I, is. I would imagine. It I mean, is. I've never had that. Yeah, it's a real rush. Because when I figure out something that nobody else knows, I look it up on Google and I find out <laughs> a million people know it. Well, these are things you can't find on Google, that's for sure. No. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, tell me one of your aha moments. Well, I studied initially in my early career auroral kilometric radiation. Okay? What? A what? Yeah. What is that? Okay. So, I'm a magnetospheric physicist. That is really what I was trained to be at the University of Iowa. Which means what? Which means uh, I never met a magnetic field I didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what was your aha magnetic moment? Ah, so rural kilometric radiation was the phenomena I was studying for which high energy particles come screaming down to the atmosphere, hitting the atmosphere, creating aurora. Oh. But above them, above this aurora, is a, is a radio wave that's generated. And we can't measure it here on the ground. We can only measure it from spacecraft. And the aha moment is we started observing this radiation, and then I realized that this radiation is exactly like what we see at Jupiter. Huh. And that's really a neat, neat thing that you know, the physics of what you're looking at applies other locations. And that's what you want to do. So, wait, this sounds like it might get to the heart of a question I've been wanting to ask you. All right. And it has to do with the primary problem— that I imagine you have 
but maybe you have a bigger problem than this. But this is the one that I, if I were in your shoes, I would think this would be a problem. Okay. I think people would be coming up to me at dinner parties and saying, look, I know you're interested in this, and I'm sure it satisfies some curiosity you have. But why do you want us to put all this money into looking at other planets when we still need food and medicine on Earth? Sure. One of the most fundamental things that have occurred in this field is comparative planetology. What's happened on Venus can happen on Earth. What's happened on Mars can happen on Earth. The more we understand the physics of how these planets have evolved, the more we're going to understand the evolution of our own planet. If we're living in a neighborhood where two or three other houses not far from us have burned to the ground and nobody knows why, and we're on that street, it would seem it would be a good idea to find out what happened to those other houses. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Except in this case, one of the houses is burning down. That's <laughs> Venus. So one more. And the other one is so cold, there's no life in it either. You wow. Know, perhaps. Yeah. So we're, we're right in that middle. So this planet is at a location in the solar system for which the greenhouse gases have warmed it about 80 degrees above where we would be if we didn't have them. So our greenhouse gases are incredibly important. But of course, what's happening on Earth is the climate is changing. From a planetary scientist perspective, the climate has done nothing but change on Earth. It's not about the change, it's about the rate. And in fact, 30 or 40 years ago, the whole concept of, of uh, uh, carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas really came into being when planetary scientists took their codes showing the runaway greenhouse effect in Venus and brought them to Earth. Hmm. And then created an Earth structure, uh, continents, the oceans, and ran their models, and then over time increased the CO2 and then watched the changes. That already alerted us to the fact that, that this was going on. Now, one of the key people that did this in NASA was Jim Hansen. Mm -hmm. And he was at the Goddard Institute of Space Studies, KISS, and that's right here in the, in the New York area. So those climate models were critical and they started with Venus. You raise a question in my mind because very often the, the discussion about climate change or the climate crisis devolves to a question of somebody saying, well, things warm up naturally. They do. And it could be just a regular cycle, even if that's totally true, which I, I think the problem is that it's warming up faster than it does without human intervention. Correct. Even, even if that weren't true, if we could do something to reverse it, wouldn't that be a good insurance policy to take out? Indeed. So the concept of then limiting our emissions is important. So, but that's that's really should be thought about as only one element of the long-term solution. Okay. What, what, what are other more important elements? All right. So now we get into climate engineering. Okay. Yeah. The the, Earth, now you're getting to scare me right now. Okay. Well, um, we are really good at terraforming planets. You know, well, we've we, done a great job on our own. We've done a great job here on Earth, man. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to take that knowledge to Mars, too, yeah, by the way. Yeah, see if we can screw that planet well, up. Well, <laughs> okay. But we're, we're going to have to get into a, a situation where 
we then take control of what we do. I give you an example. So if CO2 is our big problem and we keep producing it, it's an element of our economy, why not just take it out of the atmosphere? NASA does that every day on the space station. And what, has been doing I, I, it for I, decades. Nobody told me about this. What, what, <laughs> well, if we what, didn't take the CO two out of the atmosphere and space station, they'd all be dead in a couple of days. Well, what do you what do you mean you you do it every day? What do you do? Well, there's a variety of processes where you extract the CO two, and and that once you have the CO two, the problem is, well, what do you do with it? Mm. Okay, so here on Earth, there's a variety of ideas. And many companies are developing those for which you can take the CO two out split it apart so you get carbon and oxygen and then and then deal with them separately or you take the co2 and bury it mm-hmm. okay and if you bury it uh, then you 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 only can do that in specific areas because you don't want it leaking out mm-hmm. uh, over over short time scales but only over long time scales so i have to tell you fundamentally scientists are really hesitant about talking about this because of one simple fact, if we start actively modifying our atmosphere beyond the natural things that we do and intentionally go after things, there may be some physics we don't understand, and then we get it in a worse shape. We screw it up. That's what worries me. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a worry with the scientists. I, I, I love it when scientists express some of the same caution that we ordinary humans since without without their training, they have the yeah. training to perhaps yeah. come up with better answers than we do. But it's a good communication policy to acknowledge caution and fear on right. the part of the person right. you're communicating right. with. Right. So there's a couple things that are coming out right now because of this, this focus uh, that are, in my mind, incredibly exciting. And one idea is what would it take to then produce a Garden of Eden in the Sahara Desert. I've thought about this for a long time. <laughs> what I, I really have. What, what are some of the ideas that would produce well, greenery? Uh, yeah, so uh, one major idea is that uh, there's a series of mountains that are inhibiting some of the, the, the climate circulation uh, on the north coast of Africa. And if we can uh, uh, move water, you know, uh, trench water uh, from the Mediterranean to one of the very large areas, which used to be a lake, it's already a, a, a natural depression, mm. and flood it, and mm. flood it. And right now it's uninhabited. And right now it's uninhabited. It changes the dynamics of the of the Sahara enormously. And, well, you and get the more, estimate more moisture in the air. Well, you then have a different. You have a water cycle, indeed. Yeah. And then the Sahara starts. You, you start getting the rain, and the rain is everything. And so, as you extrapolate that model forward, you find that in anywhere from thirty to fifty years, the Sahara will rebound. Now. If so why don't you go ahead and do that? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's uh, it's easy for us to say it, and we can. As scientists love to uh, have the earth in human hands and do whatever we want with it. Right. But geopolitically, it's a challenge. I probably knew this before, but you infected me with enthusiasm for it. Good. That makes it live in my head. The I, We're talking about water. The idea mm-hmm. that there's a lot of water on the moon 
when I saw the people making footprints in the dust, I was sure there was no water on the moon. And yeah, we did too, for decades. How do you know there's water and where is it? So the concept of finding water on the moon uh, uh, grew over time. Um, we ended up having a variety of instruments that we launched for which what we were receiving in, uh, from these are orbital, orbital assets around the moon was information that was very difficult for us to interpret. And finally, over time, we were able to interpret the observations. Uh, and now we understand that there's water on the moon, it's frozen, and it's in the permanently shadowed craters in the North Pole and the South Pole. So we believe right now, we, the current estimate is between 100 and several hundred million tons of water in these permanently trapped regions. And that may actually be an underestimate. So you want to go back to the moon. Yeah. I think I heard you say in a talk that you can take the water on the moon, split it, yeah. and use the hydrogen as fuel. Mm -hmm. Does that mean if, you're, if you send spaceships, rockets, mm -hmm. to the moon and you expect to be able to get them back again using hydrogen that you get out of the water? Mm -hmm. Possible. That means you have to have a factory of some kind yep. producing this. Is that, a, is that a big operation? Do we, do we have the technology now to do that? We certainly have the technology. Uh, what we need, though, is to, over time, create a sustainable uh, uh, series of activities on the moon. And, and to do that, by 2024, the concept is we'll have our first woman and the next man stepping on the surface of the moon in the South Pole. And then over that decade, we'll have quite a few additional launches where we'll, we'll develop some infrastructure. Unlike the Apollo program, for which we go stay a day or so and then come home, we want to be able to stay many days, many weeks, and perhaps several months. Now, that requires a sustainable environment. It requires really using and leveraging resources that are already there, like the water. And the whole, whole series of things that we are planning to do by going to the moon, where we learn to live and work on a planetary surface, is what we will do on Mars. Now, you got to tell me about this <laughs> thing you talked about in one talk I heard. Okay. That you're going to look for this vent some kind of hot pipeline that you can live in. I, uh, I don't understand okay. that. Okay, okay. Tell me, tell me right. what that is. So not only on the moon, but on Mars, we have found uh, what are called lava tubes. Lava tubes. So yeah. this is a, a, some kind of tubular opening that comes to the surface? Ah, so what happens is uh, uh, hot rock which works its way to the surface, feeding volcanoes and oozing out and filling material. When it cools, it, it then creates a cavity. It's a it, lava tube at it, the, in the end. But, it's, but it's, an, it's like a cave. It's a cave. So you could, you could actually live in it because it's much warmer than the surface of it the moon. It turns out it, it is warmer in the sense that it shelters us and provides a steady temperature. 
So on the outside, where the moon goes through a normal day, huge swings of several hundred degrees uh, in temperature. Inside the lava tube, it stays at the same temperature. So we could drive in, inflate a habitat, and, and set, up, set up life, set up business in a lava tube. And we're finding them not only on the moon, but also on Mars. So the idea is to learn to inhabit the moon. Yeah, learn to so, live and work on a planetary so surface. Then you can make the next step Mars. Yeah. Right? This really goes back to your first question. Why do we go into space when we could, when we could use that money elsewhere? I firmly believe that this species, if it's going to survive, will have to move off this planet. Now, not, not the whole species, but begin to inhabit other areas in the solar system. That's how we as a species will survive. We want to go to Mars. Mars is a location where we will have humans living and working and living now, do you, will it be necessary to change the atmosphere to make it Earth-like? We know how to terraform a planet. We're doing a great job on this <laughs> yeah, one. I know. <laughs> uh, and so there's, there, there's the quite idea. a bit of work being done right now talking about how to do that. The scientists are beginning to think about how to terraform Mars. When we come back, NASA's chief scientist Jim Green explores a topic that I think fascinates all of us. Is there life somewhere else out there in our galaxy after this? On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Awards Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the end blindness movement including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.EndBlindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Jim Green and how we might one day find signs of life on another planet. We have developed an entire field called astrobiology that is involved in, in bringing disciplines together and really understanding what we mean by life and then how to look for it. So many, many years ago, when I was head of planetary science for all of NASA in 2006 to 2018, uh, I asked the astrobiologists, give me a definition of life. And, and they spent a long time with conferences and discussions and arguing it. And, they, and the reason why I wanted to know that is I wanted to build instruments to go to planets and find it. Mm. So what are the attributes that I needed to measure? 
what can you measure that says, ah, now here's life? Right. Yeah. And it so, has to be definitive. So did they give you an answer? Yeah. They came back and they were really excited, very happy. We've, we've worked it out and all the astrobiologists can say, here's, here's the definition of life. Life has three attributes. The first attribute is it metabolizes. So that means it takes in a liquid along with food. Uh, that, that's a solvent. You extract the energy, and then the liquid is used to eliminate the waste. Okay, so that's a, uh, the, a metabolic process. Second thing is it reproduces, and the third thing is it evolves. Now, they were delighted with that, and I was <laughs> depressed because <laughs> I can't build an instrument to make those measurements. How <laughs> do I build an instrument that says, you know, things involved? But with that said, we then started the process of saying, okay, we need a liquid. We need a solvent. The solvent we use is water. Mm. Let's follow the water. Mm-hmm. And so we asked our astrobiologists, go on this planet and tell me where life is. Does it live in extremes? And what does it need to do to live in extremes? So you go to the Atacama Desert or you go two miles deep into the earth. And, and, and the end result of that research was fascinating. They came back and they said, all right, we can find life in these extremes so long as there's water. Where there's water, there's life. Wow. Okay, there's, a, there's an important tracer. The second thing that, that came out of this, which was also um, a significant, is when you look at the mass of life, the, the physical uh, uh, weight, there's more biomass below our feet than there is on the surface of this planet, including all life in the ocean. Life has a hold of this planet that we just didn't realize is so significant. It's an integral part of our crust and, and, and the outer reaches of, uh, of the earth. So if you're working from the assumption that where there's water, there's probably life, when you, make, when you dig down in a core on the south pole of the moon, are you going to be able to find some trace, some fossil of we don't early think so. life? Yeah, we don't think so. The moon, even though it outgassed a lot and, and, and may have had uh, somewhat of a tenuous atmosphere during the time it was filling these mare with lava, uh, it never had the opportunity really to have life. Do most of the people who ask you about life on other planets, are they impatiently looking for life that seems like human life? And are they less interested in microbial life or something, you know, far less impressive than us to, to, in terms of what we're used to thinking of as life? Yeah, the general population is really quite interested in intelligent life, complex life, yeah. indeed. Uh, but, you know, as a scientist, microbial life is, is just as fascinating. If we find microbial life on Mars, even in the rock record for which it had it in its past, mm. that will be a game changer. That will tell us that life may be everywhere in our galaxy. So have we determined, I say we meaning you, <laughs> It, has it been determined 
what are the basic building blocks of life, including the process that brings them together in the most viable way? Do we know that? We don't know the spark, the event Mm. that takes these inorganic complex molecules and and starts the process of life. What about the guy in the 50s or 60s who seemed to be able to start life in a glass tube? What about that? Yeah, that's Yuri. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yuri uh, Yuri was a fabulous scientist and and his graduate student, Mueller, uh, came up with this idea of, well, let's start with the basic stuff we know is out there from uh, astronomy observations that could have been the what's in our cloud that collapsed that created our solar system and give it energy and see what happens now they did, at first they thought well it's going to take a long time for molecules to break up and rearrange uh, we'll just see what happens uh, it might be months before we get any results but in a matter of days they were creating amino acids mm. okay right off the bat so what's missing from that information? What 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 more do we need to know? So they've been uh, so that that type of experiment's been going on for decades now, and there seems to be a limit. There is a random process that goes on, of where molecules can break apart and recombine. Now, if you bring in a statistician and you and you, and other scientists and chemists and take a look at that process, and you say, okay, we're looking for a complex organic molecule. And we want to know when that molecule was created by life or whether it can be only created randomly. And we now have, I believe, an answer to that. And that is, uh, uh, given uh, the length of time and the statistical ability for these things to rearrange themselves, they only get so big. So if you weigh them, and we, when we do that, we call that atomic mass units. So if you weigh a complex organic molecule and, and, and it's 150 atomic mass units, that seems to be the limit of developing a complex organic molecule. And if you go above that, it has to be made not randomly but intentionally. And therefore, the concept is it must be made by life. Watch me. I, you've lost me. Okay. Um, let me see if I can go back to figure out where you've lost me because it sounds like if you, when you say it it can't be made randomly, I so, thought that— So the probability that it's made randomly if it's really big is very low. So when we're running around on Mars and we find complex organic molecules, first thing I ask is, how big are they? Hmm. And if they're really big and they're above 150 atomic mass units, the next thing I ask is, make sure we didn't bring them. Mm-hmm. Okay? And if, if you can be sure of that, which is probably difficult. That is difficult. Uh, if you can be sure of that, what does that then tell you? That they came from someplace else where we don't no, know how it, they it started? Us, or it what? tells us that Mars in its past may have had life. So let me ask you a, a question that may be interesting to all the people who want to know, is there intelligent life in the universe, aside from what we think of as our intelligent life, which I'm not so sure of. But um, what is, is, it, is it thought by science or many scientists now that if you have these complex molecules, that inevitably you'll have life? 
or is there some event that we don't know about that will produce it or not? This is really a, a fundamental question that we would like to answer. And the bottom line to that is we haven't found life beyond Earth, period. Mm. Mm. Okay? Not well, yet. Well, we have, we have indications. We right? have a lot of what I would call circumstantial evidence. Aren't you getting readings of the presence of methane, which might indicate life? And oxygen, too. Uh-huh. So, there, so methane and oxygen are being produced on Mars. And then oxygen seems to be eradicated. Methane seems to be destroyed. These are processes that could be abiotic, but we're having, meaning non-life, but we're having trouble explaining them in that way. Mm. And it could be biologically, uh, you know, there could be an indication that there's perhaps life living in the aquifers underneath the surface of Mars, Mm. just like it is on our Earth. Right, right. So we don't know. We'd love to know that. So my personal opinion is uh, we'll probably find life in our solar system first before we then find it in uh, in exoplanets. You know, uh, and the, and the reason is uh, we have so many things going for us in terms of being able to get back the rock record. Now, when you look at rocks. There's 4,700 minerals on the surface of this Earth, and 300 of them out of that 4,700 are made only because of life. So bringing back rock material from Mars— Oh, there's a big clue, huh? Big clue. So bringing back the rock record on Mars, which we've started to do, we're launching in July of this year a major mission to go to Mars, core rock— you know, create a, 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 a cylindrical piece of chalk core and then bring that back by the end of the decade, by, by 2030, and then interrogate that. You know, that, that, that'll be like our, our ice cores. It'll give us the history of Mars. It'll show us, well, perhaps how the climate changed so radically on Mars. Mars went through an enormous climate change to go from a blue planet to an arid planet. How did that happen? And was that quick or did it take a long time? And then along the way, whether there's a potential for life and, and perhaps there, there is something in that rock record that will tell us that microbial life started. Uh, it may or may not be evolving to the point where it's complex. We don't know. But indeed, we won't find intelligent life beyond the Earth in our solar system. That will have to wait until we find it on an exoplanet. So let me ask you a kind of frivolous question. Okay. Do you um, do you side with Hawking, who I think said, let's not be so fast and look for intelligent life. How do we know they won't come down here and colonize us? But the funny thing about th- that, that uh, phrase right there is uh, uh, the day he said that, I was scheduled to be interviewed on one of the major networks. Yeah. Uh, about some Mars finding, okay? And I think it was CNN. And the first thing they asked me was, <laughs> you know, well, what, what Stephen said here, are you upset about it? And I, and, I, and I first said, well, you know, Stephen is a great thinker. These are important, these are important thoughts, and that we must consider them. But right now, we're concentrating on looking for life on Mars, which is its past life and potentially its microbial life if it's there. So I'm all for continuing the search. I am all for understanding 
uh, how life may have started and what that means uh, for our future. So what steps are you taking to make sure we clean off our apparatus that gets us back to Earth and don't bring back Martian microbes that'll colonize Earth all on their own. So there's quite a bit of work that's been done over decades in the area of what we call planetary protection. Mm. So it has two parts. One, if there's life on a body we go to, we don't want to bring our life with it and infect it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the ethical aspect of that. So we clean off our spacecraft so that there's, uh, and we go through enormous amount of work to be able to do that. We we call that bio burden, re reducing microbial life that 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 uh, of Earth origin off all surfaces. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and then we bag it and all that stuff and launch it and land it and and then uh, and then we believe the spacecraft is reasonably sterile and can can perform its duties on on the ground. Uh, the second part to that is if we bring back material, we're going to quarantine it mm. uh, like we did the moon when we brought back rocks from the Apollo, and we put the, we put even the astronauts in quarantine, mm -hmm. and then we realized okay. There's nothing to be worried about. There's no pathogens that they brought back from the moon. And so we can go to the moon and come back unrestricted and mm. bring back samples and bring them right into the lab. Mm. We're developing the concepts of what that facility will look like. So the rocks, when they come back, will go right into the facility and will be studied for, you know, for maybe a significant period of time before we release them. We have to really thoroughly understand what we brought back. Now, there's another element to that. You know, for which uh, the thinking is, um, if life started on Mars, it may be so different from us that there's no connection. There's nothing to be, it's not like the Andromeda strain. There's nothing to be worried about because we don't share mm. a variety of common DNA. There'll be an evolution. That's just, this is why the concept of life uh, as, a, as a definition has to evolve. Yeah. The other concept, of course, is um, we're also quite interested in looking for life not like us. And there are, are there's at least one fantastic place to do that. Where? Titan. Oh, Titan, the moon, of, one of the moons of... Saturn. Yeah. Yeah. So why do I say that? Titan has liquid on its surface, and a lot of it. It's the only other body in the solar system with liquid on its surface. But it's not liquid water. It's liquid methane. And so is it possible there could be a whole other structure of a living thing there because of the, it's based not in water but methane? Yeah, that's the concept. And so that has started a whole new field of research called... Weird life. <laughs> <laughs> Weird life is yes. a good place for us to end. All right. I'm trying to make this conversation last all day, but they're waving at me from uh -oh. the control room. <laughs> I, this has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate oh, I, it. I always like talking about what we do. Oh, you're so good at it. <laughs> we always end our show with seven quick questions. Are you game? Absolutely. First one is, now I know what we've been, we've been talking about one version of this question all, all during okay. our conversation, but it could be more far-ranging, in fact. What do you wish you really understood? Ah, uh, it's the spark. Uh, yeah. That, that, that's, that's completely unknown territory, even though we've had some of the brightest minds in the world for decades looking at it. How do we go from inorganic matter to life? What was that spark? Mm. I mean, that's, that's got to be 
that's got to be top for me. Okay, number two. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Okay. There's a, actually a couple parts to that. You know, some, sometimes there's some uh, discussions for which um, uh, there's no right or wrong. Okay. Uh-huh. But if you, if you enter the science area, then it's all about um, experiences. What did they experience that leads them to the conclusion of whatever you know, facts. So you think try to get that out of them to yeah, find you say, out how they got you say, there. Did you ever consider this? Uh-huh. Okay. Now I have a broad range of experience, all right, a, a, a broad scientific knowledge, and 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 I am positive I have a whole series of misconceptions, <laughs> <laughs> like like most other people, Michael, like most other people. Okay, but uh, uh, the fun thing is finding finding those things that tell me my misconception is wrong, and allowing me to then bring in the new knowledge and change my mind. So, so it's a fundamental piece of a human. So when somebody says something that you believe is factually wrong, are are you open to the possibility that you might have it wrong yourself? Uh, that's a part of it, but the uh, you know, but there are some obvious things. So let's yeah. say uh, there are people that believe the Earth is flat. Right. Okay. So fine. Uh, what about their experience base that tells them it's flat? Okay. They just haven't experienced it. These people believe that it's flat because they have no reason to, to believe it's something else just because you tell them it is. Yes, right. That's so interesting. Okay, so you have to really delve into the topic. Yes. Okay, good. Here's no, no, number three. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> okay, uh, I have it. I have it. You uh, got one. I, yeah, I do. So, so I was uh, talking about uh, Mars. And at the end of uh, the lecture, a woman came up to me and said, um, um, are there any puppies on Mars? <laughs> Wait, puppies? Puppies. Oh, puppies. Yeah, like a, a little puppy dog. <laughs> yeah. Okay? And, of course, the answer was obvious. Uh, and so I, I really wanted to understand that perspective. <laughs> right. Okay? And I found out, you know, sh- you know, if we found microbial life or amoebas or, you know, tardigrades or, you know, something that would just be really fantastic and we'd be so excited, she could care less. She only but if we found the puppy, puppy. <laughs> then we got her interested. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> All right. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Okay. So I view that as um, uh, they're, they're, they're telling us their experiences. And what you want to do is you want to get them onto a topic you're interested in. Mm. Okay. So how do you do that? Well, you you just say oh that's fascinating you look for a, you look for a place that you want to then go into and right. have them explain it right i mean all they're doing is trying to search for a topic themselves uh, right. for discussion and uh, it takes a little while to do that you have to be you know you have to you have to figure out where there's some common things you want to talk about so let's say you're at a dinner table at a yeah. dinner party sitting next to someone you don't know how do you start up a real conversation with that person? Well, uh, sometimes it happens automatically because uh, they, they, I have a little jacket on with a pin, and the pin is NASA. And NASA is such a great brand. Everyone wants to talk to somebody from NASA, okay? Uh, yeah. And so it's, it, it's really a, an icebreaker right off the bat. 
you know, so I always introduce myself. Hi, I'm Jim Green. I'm, I work at NASA. And, and then the conversation just takes off. And then you become the compulsive joker. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to do that. <laughs> no, but you, I, I could listen to you talk all day. What is next to last question? What gives you confidence? Okay. So, okay, that's a good question. I have um, a character flaw. What? Okay. And that character flaw is I rarely, rarely say no. All right. I take on everything that comes my way. And, and I have done that all my career. Now, what's important about that is I learn so many things. I take on things that perhaps I had no business doing because I had no knowledge about it. But, but the fearlessness of being able to, to put myself out there, be wrong, be criticized, uh, start that dialogue is exhilarating. I can walk into a, 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 a place and, and start talking about something that, that I've been asked to do. And in that dialogue, is exciting. All my senses are alert for what I'm going to learn next. Mm. And that confidence of, of, because I've had those experiences all throughout my career, enables me to, I think, step into any kind of conversation and, and contribute. That's, that's great. Okay, here's the last question. What book changed your life? <laughs> okay, um, you're going to be surprised. It's Gone with the Wind. Oh, really? Yeah. Now you got to tell me why. Okay. So in high school, uh, my grandmother came up to me and and gave me a book um, uh, on the Civil War and said, her father, my great-grandfather, was in the Civil War. And I'm going, what? Hmm. Wow. So I wanted to learn everything about it. And he was in Sherman's Army. And, and I ended up in a, a class uh, as a senior, which was open reading. You could read and then do, uh, do reports. And, and so the concept of the Civil War attracted me. And I picked up Gone with the Wind. I was absolutely fascinated by that. Now, that, of course, is a book about the Sherman's Army destroying Georgia and Atlanta. And, and, and my great-grandfather was in that army, okay? And wow. that's a perspective. Yeah. And now Gone with the Wind gave me a different perspective. And, and so several things came out of that. One, um, my life, as hard as it may be, and the, the things that it, we experience is nothing compared to what happened during certain other eras to our, to our ancestors. And so uh, we should feel good about uh, our our life and our, our security and our ability to learn. In addition to that, there's there's more than one perspective, and we must work hard to understand that other perspective. That couldn't be a better way to end our talk because that's the essence of talk. Yeah, it is. It's so great. I'm so grateful for you for being here today. Thank well, you. Well, I can't thank you enough for the invite. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Dr. Jim Green has had a distinguished career at NASA. 
From 1985 to 1992, he was the head of the National Space Science Data Center at Goddard Space Flight Center. In 2006, he became the director of the Planetary Science Division at NASA headquarters. He's written over a hundred scientific articles, and he's even become a podcaster with a new podcast from NASA called Gravity Assist. To learn more about Dr. Green and to listen to and subscribe to his podcast, go to nasa.gov slash gravity dash assist. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our executive producer, Sarah Chase, and our associate producer, Gene Shermay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, our tech guru is Allison Costin, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. We've started something new on Clear and Vivid. It's called Patreon, and it allows you to directly support us and engage with us in a much closer way. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, here's what you'll find. For as little as $2 a month, listeners of Clear and Vivid can get exclusive behind-the-scenes access. You can find video, extra content, bonus episodes, and all sorts of fun stuff, including behind-the-scenes pictures. And for those of you who have seven questions of your own for Mr. Alan Alda, you might find some answers there, too. Now, you don't have to subscribe for as little as $2 a month to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen to the show and support us by hearing the ads. But you can get all this extra material if you do decide to become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work at the Alda Center for Communicating Science. Give Patreon a try. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. C-L-E-A-R-A-N-D-V-I-V-I-D. Next time on Clear and Vivid, I speak with Carl Zimmer, who's a great science communicator. Carl, thanks so much for being on this show. You were wonderful. Oh, thank you. What's the, what's the most interesting thing oh. this, this conversation made you think of and didn't get to say? I'm still wondering what my microbiome is is making me do. <laughs> well, yeah. I hope it makes you come back on the show soon. Yeah, yeah, well, hopefully too. Yeah. Carl Zimmer, next time on Clear and Vivid. <laughs>